morning, everyone. My name is Melissa Dalton, and I direct the Cooperative Defense Project here at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's event, Divided Responsibility, the U.S. Approach to Security Sector Assistance in Afghanistan. Before we begin to get to today, I want to share with you our building safety precautions. Overall, we feel secure in our building, but as a convener, we have a duty to prepare for an emergency. I will serve as your responsible safety officer at this event. Please follow my instructions should the need arise. Finally, please take a moment to familiarize yourself with the emergency exit pathways for this room, which are directly behind you, down the stairs. Um, if there's an incident behind you, we will go out these doors, you follow me, um, and I will take you to a safe location. Uh, today, we are delighted to be hosting uh, two distinguished uh, individuals from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Um, the uh, De director himself, uh, John Sopko, was sworn in as Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction in July 2012. Mr. Sopko has more than 30 years of experience in oversight and investigations as a prosecutor. He has served as a congressional counsel and senior federal government advisor. And prior to his appointment at SEGAR, he was a partner at Akin, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld LLP. His previous government experience includes over 20 years on Capitol Hill. We're also delighted to be joined by James Cunningham, who is the SEGAR project lead for the security sector assistance project in Afghanistan. He has supported U.S. operations in Afghanistan for the past 14 years. In his current role, he serves as a lead analyst focused on providing lessons learned and best practices for the U.S. security sector, sector assistance mission in Afghanistan. And he was the project lead for the report we're going to be discussing here today, SEGAR's Divided Responsibility Lessons from Security Sector Assistance in Afghanistan. The uh, Afghan National Security and Defense Forces have served as the proverbial long pole in the, in the tent for U.S. strategy in Afghanistan over the last 18 years. Um, so certainly um, many lessons and best practices to be unpacked, um, not only here today, but encourage you to please dig into to the report um, as it pertains to Afghanistan, but also to the broader U.S. security sector assistance enterprise. So without further ado, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Mr. John Sopko. Thank you very much uh, for that uh, kind introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to thank my good friend John Hamry, as well as Melissa, for today's invitation to discuss SIGAR's sixth Lessons Learned report, uh, which looks at the divided responsibility for security sector assistance in Afghanistan. Uh, I've been privileged uh, to enjoy a long and strong relationship with CSIS, actually going back to its founding uh, when I was working for Senator Sam Nunn on the Hill back in the 1980s. Uh, and I have continued that relationship uh, since I was a cigar. I think this is my sixth time to come here and discuss the important issue of Afghanistan and some of the work that our agency, our little agency with that tobacco-sounding acronym, CIGAR, uh, has produced. And I look forward to our continued collaboration for years to come. Uh, CIGAR began our Lessons Learned program 
at the urging, actually, of my, the first ISAF commander I worked with, and that was General John Allen, as well as the first ambassador I worked with, and that was Ambassador Ryan Crocker. Uh, other senior government officials also uh, suggested that we, as SIGAR, were uniquely qualified to look at the whole of government and the whole of government's approach to reconstruction because of our statute. Our prior lessons learned reports have examined, therefore, issues that deal with what we confronted and the whole of government confronted in Afghanistan. The first one being corruption, the second one being the reconstruction of Afghan security forces. Uh, then we looked at private sector development initiatives, uh, stabilization activities, and finally counter-narcotics. And I think one of the brochures, if I have the right ones in front of me, is a, a list we put out. It's out there, I believe, in the uh, atrium uh, where you had linked to all of the six reports. Uh, Today's report uh, actually expands upon a prior lessons learned report, which we, was released here at CSIS that looked at U.S. efforts to rebuild the Afghan security forces, and this is the title of that report, and again, it's available on the internet. Uh, at the suggestion of General John Dunford, uh, Joe Dunford, I'm sorry, and others, when we were briefing them on that first report, they suggested that we examine the patchwork of security sector assistance programs undertaken by dozens of entities, dozens of international partners to develop the Afghan security forces. The report today identifies the areas where this amalgamation of partners and programs worked well and where it fell short. To do so, SIGAR interviewed over 100 former and current government officials, conducted field work in Afghanistan, Europe, and the United States, and reviewed tens of thousands of records. The report was also reviewed by the Departments of Defense and State and of various military services. It was peer-reviewed, independently peer-reviewed, by 13 experts, including, among others, CSIS's own Melissa Dalton and Tommy Ross. Like the five other lessons learned reports, today's report is available both in traditional and interactive formats on our website, which is www.cigar.mil. And I am told by my staff that I think we are the only Inspector General's office, or 70 IGs, but we are the only one who actually issues interactive reports. So uh, makes us a little unique and I think more user-friendly to a lot of people. Today's report is organized into five discrete chapters focused on field advising, ministerial advising, equipping the Afghan security forces, US-based training of Afghan forces, and NATO's role in security sector assistance efforts. While these chapters can be read as standalone products, taken together they illustrate the disjointed and complex matrix of activities the United States undertook to develop the Afghan security forces and the related ministries. 
The relevance of this report is, I think, highlighted and reflected in the fact that just last month, NATO Deputy Secretary Rose Gottemuller asked us to come to Brussels and to give a private briefing to NATO in which hundreds of NATO officials were in attendance. Since then, we have also briefed the Hill and senior officials in the State Department and the Joint Staff. Now overall, in total, the report includes 39 findings, identifies 10 lessons, and makes 32 recommendations. Uh, the findings highlight the difficulty of conducting security sector assistance in the midst of active combat and the challenges of coordinating the efforts of an international coalition. We found that there was no single person, agency, military service, or country responsible for overseeing all of the U.S. and international activities to develop the Afghan security forces. Even within the U.S. government, no organization or military service was assigned ownership of developing key components of the mission. For example, no one tasked the U.S. Army with the responsibility to develop the Afghan Army's combat capabilities. Rather, the various U.S. services and executive branch agencies were instructed to deploy personnel to assume responsibility of security sector assistance activities for the duration of individual deployments, which normally lasted a year or less. Without the guidance of a comprehensive, expert-designed, and enduring multi-year plan, to guide all security sector activities, the U.S.'s approach often changed with each personnel rotation. These divisions often created strains on both unity of command and unity of effort, and I believe led to that off-used quote that we didn't fight one 18-year war in Afghanistan, but we fought 18 one-year wars and I would say we fought 36 wars because many of the people sent to Afghanistan served only six months. For example, while the dual-hatted US, U.S. and NATO commander in Afghanistan is largely responsible for reconstructing Afghan security forces, as with all NATO operations, the commander lacks absolute authority to dictate the exact methods and activities each NATO country must use when training, advising, and assisting the Afghan forces and the ministries. These issues impeded standardization of security assistance programs and failed to optimize the international community's significant contribution. Additionally, that commander has no direct authority over civilian actors operating within embassies, the European Union, and other international organizations, all of whom are part of the effort. Due to the breadth of this report, 200-some pages, uh, and the limitation of time this morning, I will focus my remarks specifically on two areas which I think are extremely important as we go forward, and that is field advising and equipping efforts. I would say these are probably the two most critical issues that must be addressed to create a viable Afghan security presence. 
a goal necessary to achieve both Afghan and U.S. national security objectives, whether there's a peace agreement or not. Now, it's hardly a secret that after nearly 18 years, the American public and its elected leader, leaders are weary of the war in Afghanistan. But as I noted when we released our high-risk report, which I highly recommend you all read, here in March, that Afghan security forces cannot survive without external donor support, both financial and technical. Over the course of the conflict, about 63% of the $133 billion reconstruction effort has gone to supporting the Afghan security forces. Without continued support, senior U.S. officials have warned to SIGAR as well as publicly that these forces would not be able to sustain themselves. The report examines the U.S. Army's various approaches to advising Afghan combat capabilities and found that while improvements have been made, many of the same challenges the Army faced in the early years continue to date. For example, we note that the most recent advising approach unveiled by the Army in February of 2017 was the creation of the Security Force Assistant Brigades, or SFABs. In Afghanistan, SFABs were initially designed to partner with Afghan security forces at the core level or below, and that was key, to get below the core level and to accompany those units on operations and coordinate access to coalition enablers such as intelligence assets, close air support, and medical evacuation. Staffing for the SFABs is based on recruiting active duty Army and National Guard volunteers. But while advisory experience is preferred, about 20% of the first SFAB had never previously been deployed. And even though the Army offered a number of incentives for volunteers, the first SFAB was filling billets right up to the day that they departed. Advisor roles continue to be seen as not career enhancing in the military, which contributes to high attrition rates, up to 70% uh, for the first SFAB, limiting continuity and institutional memory. On a positive note, as their after action review showed, the first SFAB's leadership noted their presence had provided an increasingly rare firsthand window into how well the Afghans were performing on the battlefield. They also noted a two to three fold increase in Afghan National Army led offensive operations in areas where SFAB teams were advising. However, our report also notes that that review by, done by the first SFAB unit also identified many of the same challenges identified by advisors who had served in Afghanistan years before, such as delayed team formations, the assignment of non-advisor tasks, and mid-deployment assignment changes. Additionally, the first SFAB advisors noted limited assets and a risk-adverse leadership as factors that inhibited their advisory mission. Drive to advise and fly to advise missions 
as short as five minutes away from their base were often required a lengthy and difficult approval process. Now, while we found pre-deployment training for SFAB units had improved, training still failed to provide instruction tailored specifically to the SFAB mission in Afghanistan. For example, many advisors were unaware that the Afghan security forces prioritized the evacuation of deceased personnel over critically wounded personnel based on religious customs. And it's interesting, we briefed a senior U.S. general who said, oh my God, we knew that in 2001. They still aren't training that to our staff. And this makes it difficult for the advisors who don't quite understand where the Afghan priorities are coming from. Additionally, U.S. Army advisors were not exposed to U.S. imposed, imposed flight hour restrictions on U.S. provided aircraft that were being managed by the U.S. Air Force in Kabul. This issue was critical since air assets fall under the command of the Afghan Army officer during operations and therefore within the purview of the SFAB advisory mission at the tactical and operational level. Knowledge of these critical command and control relationships and important aspects of Afghan military culture are important for U.S. advisors to be successful from day one of their assignment. Now, despite the 2015 transition that prioritized the train, advise, and assist mission, the SVABs do not operate under the Combined Security Transition Command, Afghanistan, otherwise known as C-STICA Command, but are rather under the U.S. commander in the field for operations. As a result, many of the advisors were tasked with non-advisory missions. One SFAB battalion was tasked with running an airfield, and another was tasked with helping coordinate air attacks. SFAB advisors also noted that they received little direction from the U.S. advisory mission in Kabul. It is also difficult to judge the true impact of the SFAB deployment because the unit lacked a monitoring and assessment tool to assess the Afghan counterparts. And mid-deployment reassessments, reassignments, excuse me, such as have the, having to switch from advising an Afghan army unit to advising an Afghan police unit, limited assessment capabilities. Now, if advising is one side of the coin, equipping is the other. The United States taxpayer has expended more than $18 billion, that's with a B, to equip the Afghan security forces, providing over 600,000 weapons, 70,000 vehicles, and more than 200 aircraft. Now, the United States typically provides defense articles and assistance to partner nations through either the Foreign Military Sales, FMS program, or the Foreign Military Financing Program, which usually are run by the Department of State. But in 2005, the Defense Department began using what is known as pseudo-FMS mechanism to acquire equipment for partner nations like Afghanistan that lacked the financial resources and institutional capability to define their own requirements. 
Pseudo-FMS refers to foreign military sales funded with U.S. appropriations rather than partner nation funding and are initiated by the United States without a formal request from the participating country. While the pseudo-FMS process, we found, allowed the United States to rapidly equip the Afghan security forces, we found that the United States was really unprepared to take on the responsibility of equipping a force at the scale required in Afghanistan. In addition, frequent personnel rotations and the lack of a comprehensive plan meant that equipping decisions were often ad hoc and inconsistent from year to year, and I would actually say from month to month. One procurement official had three different directors in a four-month period, each of whom attempted to take that program, quote, in a different direction, unquote. Lieutenant General David Bolger told us that this compare, he compared looking at the Afghan security forces to a, quote, cross-section of a sedimentary rock with each year's U.S. budget priorities and good ideas layered across the older ones, unquote. Under pressure to, quote, turn the corner now, unquote, commanders equipped Afghan forces with little regard for past decisions or future expenses. Now, negative battlefield implications, of course, resulted. For example, the U.S. military did not begin transitioning the Afghan National Police to NATO standard weapons until 2016, eight years after it did so with the Afghan National Army. As a result, during a Taliban attack on Ghazni province last year, the Afghan army were unable to resupply their besieged police colleagues because the Afghan ammunition was not compatible. SIGAR also found conflicting reports concerning the extent of Afghan involvement in equipping decisions. The Security Assistance Office in Afghanistan repeatedly told SIGAR that Afghan input had been and is currently considered at multiple levels. However, those who worked in the area that we interviewed for this report many of who had worked for C. Sticka, many for long periods of time, questioned the extent to which Afghan input was considered at all. One retired officer who spent four years in Afghanistan told us that Afghan involvement and input simply meant, quote, acquiring a signature, unquote. A former commander told Sigar that, quote, the Afghans were informed and directed, not asked or consulted, unquote and that Afghan leaders made reasonable requests and were told it's not part of our plan, basically forget it. Because of this, the U.S. had lost critical buy-in from our most valuable stakeholder, the Afghan army and the police. Defense Department officials also told Sigar that the rapid turnover of U.S. personnel often resulted in efforts to include the Afghans such as assigning Afghan liaison officers to security assistance office, were discontinued uh, whenever personnel-related rotations occurred. If and when the U.S. military transitions to a more traditional security cooperation mission in Afghanistan, 
the Afghans will need to be able to play a larger role in the direction, execution, and tracking of their own equipment, procurement, training, and sustainment. The Senate Appropriations Committee found similar problems and likewise wrote it was, quote, concerned about reports that procurements made on behalf of the Afghan security forces may be exceeding Afghan needs and not meeting other requirements identified by the Afghans, unquote. Sigar also found that the Defense Department missed opportunities to provide the Afghan security forces with more appropriate or cost-effective equipment. For example, the U.S. continues to provide Humvees to the Afghans without upgrades to protect the primary gunner that has been available for U.S. forces in Afghanistan for over a decade. Without these, the Afghans have been forced to improvise with scrap parts from destroyed Humvees and have likely suffered unnecessary casualties. The provision of armored ambulances provides another absurd example of what's going on in Afghanistan. While routinely used by U.S. forces, the Afghan security forces have just 38 armored ambulances for a force of 352,000 authorized personnel. The Afghan Ministry of Defense has repeatedly requested that the U.S. provide additional armored ambulances. But while the U.S. Army has a surplus of them, and while Congress has legislatively supported the transfer of these unneeded armored ambulances to U.S. partners, the U.S. Army has sent 287 surplus armored ambulances to be destroyed in 2017 alone, rather than provide them to the Afghan military. SIGAR also found that U.S. personnel at various organizations lack technical expertise, acquisition experience, and necessary training. Defense Department officials told us that at one point, three consecutive directors of the Security Assistance Office in Afghanistan had no prior FMS experience. These staffing concerns were highlighted in one of our 2017 audits, which we used for this report, when DOD and coalition of officials told us that C-STICA personnel do not understand the pseudo-FMS process, do not understand U.S. procurement law and regulations, or best practices for acquisition. Without this relevant experience, personnel involved in equipping decisions are generally unaware of the alternative options available to them that would save both time and taxpayer funds. Despite this lack of experience, advisors fail to fully leverage even the expertise that is housed in the Department of Defense or the various agencies. A classic example, which we've highlighted in the past, is C. Sticka's $468 million purchase of 20 G222 medium lift aircraft planes for the Afghan Air Force. And that exemplifies, we think, this lack of coordination. The program ended in March 2013 because critical parts were, quote, too expensive and too difficult to obtain. Ironically, the U.S. Air Force had identified these same problems when they were operating the aircraft from 1990 to 1999, deciding to retire the aircraft because parts were, you guessed it, too expensive and too difficult to obtain. 
No one, unfortunately, had reached back to the Pentagon and asked them what their prior experience was. So let me conclude by saying this. The recommendations you'll find in the report are intended by SIGAR to improve personnel selection and pre-deployment training. They're intended to improve long-term planning to better align U.S. and international efforts. They're intended to increase Afghan ownership of the issue and involvement in key decisions and to increase advisors' awareness of complementary activities. It's also intended to improve centralized command and control and to improve coordination to optimize security sector assistance in the future. But we are not naive. I've been doing this long enough and my colleagues have too. We know there is no quote unquote silver bullet for the problems we identify. Then no silver bullet that will fix all of these challenges. We also recognize that after 17 years of US security sector assistance, that transformative changes are highly unlikely. But we hope that the common sense reforms can make a difference and what we propose will lead to improvements in Afghanistan and elsewhere in the world where we use security sector assistance. Now let me conclude by saying it would, I would be remiss if I did not thank the Lessons Learned Program Director, Joe Windrum, who's sitting here in the audience, Project Lead, James Cunningham, who is here today with me to help answer the questions, who, who really took the bulk of the work and his team, Zachary Martin, Brittany Gates, Samantha Hay, Ashley Shorts, Brian Taspley, Taspley, uh, Tarpley, I'm sorry, Nikolai Kandi Panunov, Tracy Content, and Vong Lim for their excellent work on this report. Although this is a cigar report, it's really theirs. They've spent years working on it. And I hope you have an opportunity to read it, and I look forward to your questions, and so does my, do my colleagues. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much, John, for the, the sober uh, reflections on the state of U.S. security sector assistance in Afghanistan. Um, certainly a lot of lessons to, to take forward and digest, uh, not only in the Afghanistan context, but for how uh, the United States and, and its allies might approach this enterprise in, in other situations. Um, I was really struck having had read the report, of course, but um, hearing in your own words uh, talk about um, the fact that there was no single entity assigned for the responsibility and oversight of U.S. security sector assistance in Afghanistan is pretty remarkable, uh, 17 years in, um, and, and thinking about um, really the design of, of any such effort um, in having that, to be able to pin the rose on someone uh, for, for a multifaceted enterprise that involves not only the United States and its partner, um, but also the, the array of um, coalition efforts that, that are feeding into that process. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more and invite James as well um, to, to contribute in terms of 
thinking about how central building the capacity of the Afghan Defense and National Security Forces has been to the U.S. strategy for the last 17 years, really, as I said at the beginning, the long pole in the tent, um, proverbially, um, and you know, tying that, the fact that there's no single entity driving it to the, the policy outcome and objectives that we're trying to achieve in Afghanistan, how does that impact our ability to know whether we are on track to achieving our overall outcome and objective for, for Afghanistan? Let me just uh, respond briefly now, turn over to James. Um, you're absolutely correct. I mean, this is the long pull. Uh, if we ever want to get out of Afghanistan, uh, meeting our objective was to create or help create a centralized government that would keep the bad guys out and not let them attack the United States or our allies. So security is important. Uh, the police and the military are keys. And whether it is a peace treaty or not, and we strongly support peace, I think everybody in this room supports an honest and fair peace in Afghanistan. The poor Afghans deserve it. But you still are going to need a security force because the Taliban are not monolithic, as we know. Uh, and you've got ISIS. And you've got unruly warlords and gangs and other threats. So you need a functioning police and a functioning military. And therefore, you need assistance. And if you look at it, and again, I highly suggest you read this report. And it's online, and it's uh, on the high risk list. We say you've got to plan for that. If peace comes, all these problems that my agency, the GAO, and other agencies have identified for the last 17 years don't miraculously disappear. If we sign peace, all of a sudden, you think the narcotics problem disappears? The corruption problem disappears? The economic problem in Afghanistan disappears? Uh, the security problem disappears? No. So failure to plan now is planning to fail once peace is declared, and we hope for that. So I think this is a key, and, and again, the long pull is you've got to have a viable, effective military and police force that is functioning, and functioning in a way that we think is best. That means no violation of human rights, et cetera. So. James, do you want to? Sure, thank you. Uh, a lot of times, the Afghan National Defense Security Force is often viewed as our exit strategy mm -hmm. to kind of get out of Afghanistan and have them take over the counterterrorism mission. However, the problem is, is that we oftentimes align our vision of security assistance through the lens of combat. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's not the long pole, short pole, but we have to move security assistance at the pace of operations or at mm -hmm. the pace of security. And so that's a really big problem because it's a tie to our policy for combat, not necessarily tied to our long-term foreign policy. Perfect example is back in 2003, 2004, we were going to design one central core for Afghanistan and then leave during the 2004 elections. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. Army was planning that there may need to be an expansion at a later date, but we're told to stop the planning because we will not expand the security forces beyond one core in Kabul. And we know today that probably would have been a good plan to have. I think the other problem is a lot of the advisors are told to operate 
on the speed of operations for the train mm -hmm. devise and assist. And so what you see is advisors partner with Afghan units and they assess them as needing some help. But by the time they leave, they show progress. And so the mechanism they use go green right. and saying their task is complete. But the next unit that comes in to partner with security forces then says they regress. So we, we actually see in the assessment tool, it's almost like a shark tooth. And the shark tooth is actually based off our deployment cycle. And so we really can't assess it long term because we're viewing it through the operational lens and not through this long term policy. Right. Well, and, and to that point of you know tracking metrics, and it seems that we've been primarily viewing that through the U.S. lens. And referring back to John's speech about um, the lack of definition or engagement with with the Afghans to define um, what their outcomes and objectives and, and milestones might be for for their own security force development has has there have there been instances where where we have gotten that right maybe at the tactical level um, that your uh, report illuminated or was it a complete gap across the board so i think we've gotten it correctly on, on certain capabilities i think there's an air capability in which we were able to assess them and we had some input and output mechanisms that we can judge over time. Mm -hmm. uh, we weren't necessarily weren't still looking at the outcomes, but we still were looking at, I think, the right metrics for some of those things. I think the problem ultimately in our monitoring evaluation tool is one, we did not include the Afghans in deciding what to look at. But the second thing is the advisor himself is grading himself. Right. And so there's not an independent assessment team, which we recommend in this report, that's actually doing this long-term, multi-year, multi-deployment evaluation. It's how well am I doing? Right. And so I judge myself versus necessarily judging the Afghans' capabilities over time. Right. And going back to, to a thread in, in your prior comment in terms of the, the tension between the short-term operational kind of battle-driven metrics and, and progress that we're making versus the, the long-term policy goals, um, the current U.S. administration has emphasized a desire to see better return on investment for security sector assistance writ, writ large, um, but oftentimes these returns uh, are, are, take time to manifest. Um, how best can the United States strike the balance in Afghanistan between showing short-term gains um, that are necessary for, for political and, and fiscal top cover, uh, particularly on Capitol Hill, while simultaneously maintaining the political will in Afghanistan with our coalition and NATO pro partners more broadly to keep investing in longer-term, more sustainable solutions? Okay. Sure. Um, I think some of that comes down to being realistic about what we're trying to implement in Afghanistan. A lot of things that they can self-sustain are not U.S. made. Mm -hmm. And so perfect example is the Air Force. Their MI-17 program, the Afghans are going to be able to self-sustain that around 2017, 2018. But the U.S. decision to take away the MI-17 program and bring in the UH-60 Blackhawk set the Afghans back, but we, I don't think, have been transparent enough to say that is not a negative result of the Afghans, right. but it's a decision of which we made that we need to be transparent about that to get that political will and long-term commitment is to understand what our decisions do as far as impact and how it is with the Afghans. I think to show them progress over time, we also need to talk about in the U.S. military, you're not going to have a lieutenant colonel or a colonel in five to ten years. Right. And so I think in Afghanistan what you're starting to see now is this next generation of U.S. trained uh, NATO advised forces coming into the fold into senior level positions uh, and General Miller will often highlight them as, as a good news story. So I think we're starting to have some highlights that we can show that say this is the outcome of long-term mm -hmm. security assistance. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would argue that the new generation is still too early to judge completely as far as their ability to do something on board. M Melissa, can I yep. just add to that? I think it's a uh, 
if you read our reports and over the last seven years, a common refrain of our agency, and I think most oversight agencies, is to be honest to the taxpayer and to be more honest to Congress as to the limitations of what we're doing there. Right. And I think there's a tendency among, maybe it's an American trait, or maybe it's required by the appropriation cycle, I don't know, but to claim success within six months, just like he right. talked about, James talked about the shark tooth. That's in one of our reports where we actually, James's team took the, the uh, assessments, and gee, they, they, they matched perfectly with people's rotations, you know? So you wonder about that. Uh, we, we also actually looked at, I think it was three or four different assessment tools that uh, ISAF and NRS had on assessing the Afghan military. And again, we're an independent inspector general. This is mm -hmm. one of the benefits of having independent inspectors general. Uh, we don't have a dog in the fight. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're not related to any of the contractors. We don't have to go up to the hill and, order and argue for a program. So we came in and every time we looked at the assessment tool, the military would abolish the assessment tool and say, no, don't waste your time. We got a new assessment tool. Yeah. So they kept moving, not even moving, the goalposts eventually disappeared. So that's important. I mean, let's be honest to the American people. We should have been more honest years ago and said, this is gonna take a long time. Just right. like what James said. You know, it takes, what, 20 some years for us to train a colonel in the Army. Do we really think we're gonna turn around a general officer in the Afghan military in six months? You need time, and I think General Miller's talking about that. He's hopeful with these new officers we brought in, or the Afghans have brought in new, younger officers, but it's gonna take time. Yep, no, I think that's, that's just right. Um, Speaking of the, the training element, I believe in the report it mentions that only 13 out of the large number of Afghan National Defense and Security Force officers trained in the United States under the International Military Education and Training Programs, or IMET, um, are now in prominent government positions, acknowledging this, of course, is a generational uh, effort. Um, but what are some of the specific uh, problems related to Afghanistan with maybe the efficacy of IMET, and what steps can the United States take to, to mitigate these issues? Well, the, the biggest, first, the first problem I would raise is I don't know if that IMET tool is a good tool to use in Afghanistan. Right. I mean, that basically is rating success on how many uh, pilots or soldiers that, that we train are Afghan end up in parliament or end up as general officers. And I, I don't know if that is the right tool to use in Afghanistan, the first thing. The second problem you have is we really don't have good visibility on the Afghan personnel system. Mm -hmm. So we really don't know. Even that number, I'm not certain that number is accurate. Mm -hmm. We don't know where they end up because they don't have a really good personnel system. The third problem we've noticed, and unfortunately, um, I, I think we, this is where we've gone backwards, not forward. We've noticed that there's a big problem of AWOL. Yep. Afghans come over here and it's the highest percentage, and correct me if I'm wrong, James, I think of, of any country that sends people over here, Afghans are the high, have the highest percentage of going AWOL. Now, part of that is a problem that the Afghan government, when somebody comes over here for training, uh, they go on with like retired or semi-employed status. 
so they lose their pay. Mm -hmm. So they may not want to go back. Right. There's also a problem of corruption, that many of these people we train, we bring them over here, they got to pay a bribe to get their job back in Afghanistan, so they decide to stay. There's also, we've heard, a network of Afghans here who will try to get these uh, soldiers who come over here mm -hmm. to leave and end up in Canada or elsewhere. That's a problem. Uh, but what I think we made a big mistake this year is we decided we're not going to train any Afghans in the United States. And I think we were talking about this before. Um, we highlighted the Air Force training program as a success story. It was the gold standard, where the US Air Force down at uh, for, uh, Camp Moody, Fort Moody down in Georgia, would bring Afghan pilots over. They worked closely with American pilots and American trainers for four years. And they went back and forth. That was a great success story. Well, that program no longer can exist because we decided, because of a fear of AWOL, just to cut all training of Afghans in the United States. And so I think we, to maybe, you know, to proverbial despite yourself, you cut off your nose, to do that rather than use a meat cleaver, yeah. to use a precision, because the, uh, the Air Force in Moody had a very clever program on how to keep people. Basically, mm -hmm. if you came as a group and for training, you would get additional money if you all left as a group. So if anybody left, there would be like peer pressure. No one would get this bonus when they left. And, and there were some great things that the Air Force was doing, but unfortunately the Air Force won't be able to do it anymore. Yeah, and you know, you raised an interesting issue in terms of taking the lessons from the Afghanistan example and extrapolating them to the broader security sector assistance world in terms of, you mentioned that IMET not, might not be the best training tool for Afghanistan. So there's this question of in fragile state, contested state, um, you know, where there's an active war happening, where this force is engaged, um, what is the tool set that we bring to bear um, to, to work with our partners in, in those contexts? Um, you know, are there other tools that need to be sharpened or refined or created um, with relevant authorities and funding to be able to provide the type of trained advisors in context um, to, to support that actual um, you know, training objective as it connects to the context and the goals for the partner in, in the United States. You know, I think we have um, some relevant authorities that we use in places outside of Afghanistan, um, but you know, perhaps that is a broader conversation that, that needs to be had. And your recommendations are also coming at a time where there is an ongoing active conversation in Washington following um, in 2017 in the National Defense Authorization Act, there were fairly sweeping reforms to the security sector assistance enterprise um, as implemented by the Department of Defense. Um, so as you're putting these recommendations out there, what sort of resonance have you heard thus far from the broader community in terms of what sort of lessons should be informing how we do this in other countries? I'm going to defer to James sure. on this. Uh, so there has been a, a good reception to a lot of our reports on, on how to do things better and how to improve our security cooperation efforts um, over time. I think the problem with Afghanistan related to 2017 and the AA, it's, it's often excluded yeah. or it's not part of. And if you actually look at the mandated security cooperation budget, 
that's been mandated by that reform, there's a line that says that Afghan Security Forces right. Fund is excluded from this effort. Right. Um, so I think they view Afghanistan as kind of a lost cause, something beyond, um, something outside the purview of traditional security cooperation. So it, it's often meeting those reforms later, not at all. And perfect example to that is the assessment, monitor, and evaluation tool yep. program that's supposed to be for all security cooperation programs. Um, I know they're trying to formulate a team now to potentially start that for Afghanistan. But again, you're multi-years late. Right. And we've been there for over 17 years doing this. And so how do we get those reforms that are targeting kind of the future effort to right. also look at our current efforts and improve that to include their workforce development, where I don't believe many advisors out there are actually getting that certification training. And they're still the ones that are making all the key decisions for us on a daily basis. Right. Well, and, and to break down that barrier of thinking about Afghanistan as, you know, it's apples and oranges versus everything else that the United States is, is undertaking, I think falls apart, you know, over the arc of our experience in Afghanistan as we're shifting to a different type of mission with resolute support of the last few years and then looking out regardless of what uh, policy course this administration or future administration chooses to take, this mission likely will be sustained um, and perhaps, as, as John was speaking about earlier, transition to, into a more traditional model. So I think it would behoove the, the community to break down some of those uh, communication stovepipes and, and start sharing those, those lessons. Um, on the, um, the question of, of workforce development, I wanted to follow up on some of the, the comments and findings on the security force assistance brigades. Um, could you speak a little bit more about the role of, of the SVABs in the Afghanistan context? Um, you spoke a little bit about the differences between the first SVAB um, that had deployed being um, active at multiple levels um, down the, the organization of the Afghan um, National Defense and, and Security Forces, um, but then the second deployment being a bit more removed from some of the, the lower echelons. Are there other findings that you think will be important for the Afghanistan context and then thinking about the SFAB model going forward? As, as I understand, um, this was very much um, a priority for General Milley and given his ascension in the Joint Staff, um, you know, this, this operating model might be applied or thought about more broadly in a global context. With James, uh, James actually had a great opportunity in his team to go and brief and then be interview and interview the first SFAB, I believe. So I'm going to defer to him. But I think one of the best successes I thought it was a great, you know, lessons learned is when the first SFAB redeployed, mm. they created the training program for the second SFAB. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was fantastic. That was actually taking some people now who have had on-the-ground experience, and you didn't lose that. They brought it back. So, but James, I know you may want to add some of the other things you learned on your trips down to the SFABs. Sure. I think with the SFABs, there was a lot of growing pains initially. So the Military Advisor Training Academy down in Georgia initially created a training program thinking the SFABs are going to advise at the ministerial level. And shortly beforehand, we're told by General Milley and uh, General Mattis at the time, we're now going tactical and operational. And so there's this revamping of them real time to try to get them ready for their deployment. So I think they've become a little bit more steady state in what they're planning to do and, and how they implement them going forward. But I think the big thing for everyone to consider for the Security Force Assistance Brigades is they're institutionalizing a team formation 
but they're not institutionalizing the expertise. And so with 60 or 70% attrition year after year, even if the first SFAB goes back into Afghanistan, it's a new advisor learning again from the ground, repartnering it without the rapport established. Mm -hmm. And so you're not really institutionalizing that memory or right. that rapport that, that's critical for the SFABs um, moving forward. One thing that we've recognized in our report is that the SFABs really strain the U.S. military's ability to leverage some niche capabilities. There's only so many military intelligence captains in the Army. Mm -hmm. And so how do you balance that need against the brigade combat teams that are going to be fighting the near-peer fight and the security force assistance brigades that are going to be partnering with the, the units? And right. so I think the services also need to look at um, how do we do both uh, right. with some of the select uh, low-level people that we have as far as the advisor corps. Right. Well, in, in thinking about those, those broader contexts of strategic competition, how might an SFAB or an SFAB-like unit actually be deployed in those types of contexts to be working with allies and partners um, is also an interesting prospect. So it'll be interesting to see where, where the Army and, and more broadly the, the services take that um, going forward. I'm going to ask our, our two panelists uh, one more question and then we're going to turn to the audience in just a moment. Um, but you mentioned the um, institution building uh, role. Um, there was the, the MOTA program earlier in uh, the U.S. experience in, in Afghanistan, and now we have um, defense management and institution building, or defense institution building. It has, the, the name of it has evolved over time, but it, but it is a key function, and that connective tissue you know, between um, the, the top political level in Afghanistan down to the field level being such a critical part of building a professionalized force. Um, John also mentioned um, some of the issues or questions surrounding the personnel system. How do you see going forward the question of defense institution building in Afghanistan and tied to some of the, the lessons or findings of this most recent report? Sure. So what we found in the report is that the Ministry of Defense Advisor one of the best trained and selected individuals going forward. However, at most, I think we had 12 to 15 percent actually doing the mission comparatively. The U.S. military does not have a training program institutionalized yet for them to go through this kind of inst institutional development or training an advisor on how to do ministerial advising. Right. It still focuses on that tactical level. I know they're working on it uh, down at uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center, but it's not an institutionalized concept going forward. So they're not getting that training going forward, but yet they're making up a large part of our advisory core yeah. that's responsible for these missions. The one thing we call it security sector governance, so mm -hmm. the human resource management, budgeting, things of that nature. What we don't understand a lot of times is that we started the things that take the longest and the hardest to do the latest. And so we don't think about these systems because we're focusing on combat and operational capabilities. And then when we start coming around to, we need to create human resource systems right. and things of that nature, you're 10 to 15 years in. And those things take an extra 10 to 15 years. Right. And so we need to start implementing them early. But I think the biggest challenge we're going to have in Afghanistan with this defense institution building is that it really requires a proper turnover between advisors, that you're not going to be able to complete all the tasks to create a human resource system in 12 months. What are your tasks for the first 12? And what do you need to transition to the next advisor to take over that mission? But we lack that kind of mental mindset of this theory of change of, I don't do everything during my tour, that there are follow tours to it. So right. if we can start getting our advisors to understanding how to build defense institution capabilities and how to work 
with the next advisor to make sure that it's streamlined going forward, I think that's probably the best, set, uh, best chance we have for, for creating these type of things in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think that's, that's really well said. And then also engaging with the Afghans on how they frame their institutions and the enduring solution set that's going to work for them um, after, after we depart. And just to yep, add to that, Melissa, this goes back to the long-term planning and, and looking at the long haul on this thing, yes. not the six month or one year rotation. Absolutely. Great. At this point, we're going to transition to questions and answers from the audience, which I'm happy to moderate. Um, we have uh, several CSIS staff on hand that have microphones. Um, so when I call on you, please do wait for the uh, staff member to bring the microphone to you. And then uh, please do introduce yourself with your name and affiliation. And please state your question in the form of a question. Um, so we will start with this woman right up here. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't know of any tension. I mean, I've talked to General Miller and all that. The, the, the information you, uh, I think it may be alluding to, is information that the uh, uh, Afghan government uh, asked uh, uh, RS and C. Sticker not to provide. And, uh, you know, we, we have highlighted that. I don't think this was General Miller or, or his team particularly. Uh, and then a decision was made, I think, the beginning of last year, if I'm not mistaken, about uh, actually not collecting certain data, which I think was a decision that was made not by General Miller, but was made back here in Washington that they no longer were collecting it. Uh, I don't think of it as a tension. It's just that you know we highlighted the fact that without this data, it's hard for the average taxpayer to know. Again, it goes back to a monitoring tool. You know, we're not collecting the data on the number of districts under controlled by the Afghan government or the number of districts under controlled by the Taliban, then it's hard to rate whether we're winning or losing. So, I mean, that's the, essentially the tension that we have. It's the amount of information. But uh, there, there's no tension per se with uh, General Miller and his team. Uh, where they can, I mean, again, and I, I defer to you because you were talking to C. Sticka about some of the things they're implementing. Yeah, they have. Um, but again, General Miller's not in charge. <laughs> A lot of these changes have to be made back here in the Pentagon or have to be made uh, elsewhere, or Congress has to weigh in on some of them. So, but maybe, James, you can sure. follow up on any of that General Miller's instituted. Sure. Uh, during the research phase, uh, the C-Sticker Commander, General Rainey, actually provided me great access in Afghanistan to what they're doing. It, it was a great full-day trip of, of providing me the reforms they're taking and, and best practices they're trying to implement. And during our agency review process, we had close discussions with them about things that they thought were valid in our report and also things that they challenged in our report, and we worked through those things. So I think we do have a, a very good relationship with them. I, I'm not quite sure of everything within our report that they're taking action on. Uh, but over time, we'll continue to go out to Afghanistan and continue to engage in this ongoing dialogue to, to hopefully implement some of these lessons learned for the future operations. Great. Gentleman here in the front. 
just wait for the microphone, please. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, Raghubir Gawar, I'm a journalist in Washington uh, covering the White House and State Department. Uh, this war has been going for a long time, not just for 18 or 20 years, for, since uh, in the 70s. But people of Afghanistan still living in dark, and still they are hoping that there will be one day, someday, light in the dark tunnel. My question is here, this report may be timely or not, but attacks, terrorist attacks are still going on, including yesterday, many people died. My question is, how much you think Pakistan that U.S. had been relied on doing to end this war to help the U.S.? Pakistan had been given billions and billions of dollars in the name of Afghanistan. Taliban and all those things, they are still there inside Pakistan. Pakistan Prime Minister was here last week. He admitted that ISI of Pakistan was behind to get Osama bin Laden for Pakistan and also, but at the same time, they've been denied for the last 20 years Osama bin Laden was not in Pakistan. And second, he said more than 40 terrorist groups were operating inside Pakistan. He admitted in the White House before President Trump. I was there. But at the same time, terrorists still Terrorist groups are still there, and they have factory of terrorists inside Pakistan, including four most terrorists wanted by U.S., India, and Afghanistan, and Israel. But they are not uh, saying that they are there. My question is, how much you think uh, U.S. still rely on Pakistan? And finally, Pakistan does not want India's presence inside Afghanistan. How much you think India has done? Because more than $3 billion India have invested reconstruction or constructing still. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, this report has nothing to do with any of those issues you raised, when they may be very important issues. Uh, I'm an inspector general. My office looks at reconstruction. I think the question you're raising is more of a policy, uh, political issue that I'm not the person to ask. So really can't address your questions. Um, let's go to the gentleman in the back with the, yes. I have no comment. Yeah. Thank you. Gentleman in the back, yep. Uh, thank you, Jeff Selden with uh, VOA. Just want to get back to the information uh, that had been withheld, specifically the district assessments that had been done for a long time. The military says that they're still being done, but they always got that information from the intelligence community. Given the, the vital role in, in determining whether the U.S. is winning or losing or being successful, have you been able to reach out to the intelligence community, and has there been any willingness on their part to declassify and share that information with you? Well, well we have complete access to information from the intelligence community, uh, but I really don't want to comment on what they do or don't do. Uh, but what we specifically were addressing at that time was an unclassified collection of information that the military had been doing based upon, I think, data from uh, uh, the Afghans. And all we did was highlight the fact that it's no longer being collected. Uh, I just really don't feel I can discuss what the intel community does or does not do. But we do have access. All of our staff have clearances. We get the classified briefings. And of course, we produce a classified annex for those members and staff on the Hill uh, who want to uh, read the reports. Gentlemen here in the front.
Thank you, Melissa. Uh, my name is Abdul Bari. I am the director for an Afghan news NGO. Uh, you mentioned uh, one of your recommendations is that the Afghan uh, Air Force um, training should not be cut off as it is right now, since it's crucial and uh, in most part ISIS like such as Lagman, Lingarhar, and these kind of province, it's, uh, these provinces are covered by mountains and Air Force operation, continuous operation is needed. Uh, but uh, current atmosphere in DC here, it's it's election time. Probably that that would be something to consider. Would you advise any kind of alternative, like training Afghan f air forces in third country under uh, U.S. Uh, military advisors? Thank you. I, I, it's a very good question. I, uh, I don't want to imply that all training has ended it isn't going to be done here in the United States. And I think uh, our concern and sort of frustration is this was really the gold standard for training what the Air Force did on the A-29. And it was because they worked very closely with the Afghan pilots and mechanics, brought them over here. They assigned people for four years, the same advisor for four years with those pilots. So you developed a really great rapport. Uh, the training, I don't want to imply that that training isn't going to be done. I believe, and James, you can add, I forget which country it's going to be assigned to do. But you, it's a shame because it really was the gold standard and it's not being done uh, because of the fear of AWOL. And it's not just that program, it's all the programs. So they are being done, but they're being done in third, third world, third other, other countries. I don't know where the A29 program is going to be done. Is that India or is that... Uh, they haven't made a final decision, yeah. but for the UH-60 program, for example, we had a great audit that we published uh, last year, and it highlighted the different areas in which the UH-60 program beyond the U.S. is receiving training prior to going back to Afghanistan. The problem is, is what we can do in the U.S. military is we can train them to combat standards, mm -hmm. but over in Slovenia and the UAE, they were training them to civilian standards, and then they would have to go through a course in Kandahar to actually reprofessionalize. One of the things we mentioned in our report is the need for this, what we call a dependency analysis. If the U.S. is going to reduce its footprint, security sector assistance footprint or combat footprint around Afghanistan, how does that impact our security sector assistance programming? If we reduce our size in Kandahar, how does that impact the UH-60 program? And so we really argue that there needs to be some sort of dependency analysis done so we can measure where the training needs to occur and to make sure that the Afghan Air Force's capabilities are sustained. Great. Gentlemen, way in the back there. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Piers Dubersha, Advice of America Postal Service. Uh, John, in April, you expressed concerns over a potential peace treaty with Taliban. So do you think your concerns have been uh, addressed in the latest rounds of talks? And what, are your, what is your main concern if, the, if there is a, a peace made with the Taliban? Thank you. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. He uh, was referencing some of the comments made earlier about um, the peace negotiations with the Taliban um, and what you think about the prospects for that and whether some of the concerns that he heard you express uh, have been taken yeah. into consideration. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have no input on the, uh, uh, the peace process uh, other than, uh, just like you, I, I follow it in the news uh, and we support a fair and uh, lasting peace in Afghanistan. The point we make at this, with this report and what I was saying is, despite peace, 
problems don't miraculously disappear. You know, we wish they would, but so you have to plan for the day after. And that's the point we do. I mean, we, you know, again, I'm an inspector general on reconstruction. I'm not an inspector general on peace negotiations or foreign policy. Uh, we look at process. And what I'm saying is we and other oversight bodies have identified problems that have affected reconstruction. And some of these problems could affect lasting peace. So we're telling Congress, we're telling the executive branch, here are the problems, plan now, not waiting till the day after. So that's all I'm saying. I'm not commenting on the negotiations because again, I'm not privy to that and it's not my job to do that. We support peace. Uh, I think everybody in this room supports uh, a lasting and fair peace. Great. Um, let's go with the gentleman over here. Thank you. Gene Rossetti, retired Navy captain, and with a grandkid who was a first lieutenant in Afghanistan. <clears throat> to, to go a little further on you, what you mentioned about pre-deployment training and where, where it could obviously be improved, uh, how do you assess like a day-to-day -day connectivity between Afghanistan and the States? If I'm a unit commander in Afghanistan and I come up and I learn something that you know, I know I'm leaving in four months, say, and I know that I'm coming on something that my relief needs to know. Am I, or are these people talking generally back to their, their relief, or do they even know who he is or what unit he's coming from? James, Sure, I, I can address that. The, um, the problem is, you're right, sir, is the, knowing who your relief is and how do you put something in place for them to set it up. And historically, over time, we have not had that in place. But in Afghanistan today, there's a huge effort to get this advisor, Afghan advisor network database uh, to be able to work at the combat and operational tactical level where you can input things that you observed, seen, issues, or people you're engaging with, and they'll be in place for the next unit to come on board to learn from. It is not there yet. Um, they're still working on some of these issues down at the Joint Readiness Training Center to make it more available at the tactical level. But even the first SFAB, when they're deploying with Afghan units, they suffer from things like lack of uh, potable water, lack of electricity. So how do you use these systems if you don't even have the access to some basic needs on these missions? But they are trying to fix the way in which your units can actually communicate to each other and actually bring that capability back to the United States and provide advisors access to it prior to going forward so they're able to see some of the things going on. But it really is upon the unit commander of the team going out there to know about the database and to actually leverage it to get his team ready to go forward. And, and that's not standardized nor institutionalized. Can I also add one thing we have seen over time is there's been an overlap between some of the units that went out, or at least part of the units. So I remember with James and I, this was about a year ago, we were down at uh, the TAC, and uh, as I think it was Texas National Guard were leaving, the new group and some of the senior officers that had already come in and overlapped for a few months. So they shared information that way. So that is occurring, but I don't know how much of that was organized or if that was just a, a one-off. I'm not certain of that. 
But let me just say other thing is, it's not, we're not just critical of the military, of all this report looks at it. This is a problem throughout the U.S. government. Um, we had hundreds of advisors uh, from the Department of Justice who came over and did rule of law. And I remember uh, talking to one of them who said he begged the Department of Justice to let them stay over or at least write up their notes of what they saw, who they dealt with, what were the problems, who's corrupt, who isn't, for at least three weeks before they left or a month before they left. Never done. So we had thousands of people come through on that program. No one has captured any of the information, which is just a, it's, it's a waste, a total waste. And that's what we've seen repeatedly. It's not just the military. Yeah. And it's, it's a problem that's not unique to Afghanistan either, um, at least on the security sector assistance and um, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency is undertaking a huge um, workforce development program initiative. Um, and part of that is to try to connect uh, extant members of the security sector assistance community as well as mentoring the next generation and creating a repository um, for best practices, lessons learned, but also to enable this transition of, of personnel as, as they are coming and going from different locations. Um, well, well, so very yeah, much a work in progress. Yeah, and Melissa, along that line, I mean, when we started this, I remember John Allen, General Allen, we had breakfast with him. And he said, when I said we started this lessons learned program, let's just say, four years ago or three years ago, he said, look it, the, the Marines will do after action reports. The Army will do after action reports. He said even the Air Force may do after action reports. Yeah. Always everybody's cutting down something. But anyway, I shouldn't have probably said that. Probably General Allen would kill me for saying that. But anyway, he said, but will there be purple, which means cross the whole, you know what purple means. Uh, will there be lessons learned reports done? And he said, more importantly, will the State Department be doing lessons learned reports? Will USAID be doing lessons learned reports? And is anybody trying to capture the whole yeah. of government lessons, how they all interacted? And he was absolutely correct, nobody did. I mean, we went around, we went to the State Department, they said, great idea, we have nobody doing lessons learned. Uh, they assigned one person who did a tour, and that was it for the lessons learned report. USAID, we went over there, I mean, it's a great agency. They do lessons learned, but they said they weren't going to share them with anybody. Okay, that's USAID, the former USAID, not the current regime. Um, nobody, we went over to the NSC, and the NSC said, great idea, uh, but we're not doing it. So it, it, it falls to an inspector general to do lessons learned for the longest U.S. war. Now, I think it's great that what we're doing, I think a lot of people like the reports who've come out, they find them useful, but it is kind of odd in this entire U.S. government, there's not an agency that regularly collects information like this and does best practices and lessons learned. And maybe that's why we tend to repeat the same mistakes. But I would, you know, proselytize the importance of lessons observed. I must say, they're not learned until you actually apply them for not only this issue, but for other issues. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we handle, uh, I was on the Hill and worked for 25 years up there. How do we handle uh, issues dealing with uh, uh, opiates? Is anybody looking at it, or narcotics? Has anybody done a lessons learned report on how we handled the counter-narcotics issue, going back to 
you know, the first uh, anti-drug uh, uh, act going back to 1900. No one has put that all together and tried to analyze what are the best practices. Yep. And so, you know, my plea to you as you read these reports and think about it is you have an inspector general's office on reconstruction writing the history of Afghanistan. We are glad to do it. It's part of my charter, but it seems to me like an odd charter to have out there. So. Maybe there's an enterprising uh, PhD student that wants to take yes. us on as a dissertation. Join us. Well. We're always yeah, looking exactly. for it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The woman here in the front. Hi, my name is Marzia Nauruzi. I work with the Feminist Majority Foundation. We keep hearing that um, Taliban control over 40% of uh, Afghanistan. And uh, my colleague just recently did a map of Afghanistan to see uh, how much it's true. And she did it based on population. She looked at each district and the population of that district and where it was, it was congested and where the Taliban had control. And she found out that only 3% of population live under the Taliban regime because research has also found that um, where Taliban control, um, people either leave or it's already quiet and empty. And of course, Taliban have no control of one cent uh, city center because they tried to take over and then the, uh, the Afghan uh, military and government took it back. Uh, wouldn't it be unfair to keep saying that, oh, Af uh, Taliban, uh, you know, control 40% instead of looking at the population of it. Uh, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I'm not responsible for what people say in the press. I mean, our reports, we reported the data we got from the Afghan government and the U.S. government at a, I think we last reported that in our quarterly report in like January. So. We, we stand by whatever that information was. I don't think we've reported that because no one's collecting it right now. So these reports you talk about are reports in the media or some other sources. I don't, I really don't know. I can't comment. I don't, can't comment if they're accurate or not. And we uh, shared our uh, map with uh, some Afghan officials and they agreed with us. Well, consider your sources, so. <laughs> thank, thank you. Gentleman over here in the blue shirt. Thank you. Hello, sir. My name is Mansoor Mansoor, and I work with the International Foundation for Electoral System here in DC. My question is, uh, given the presidential uh, election that's scheduled in September and the recent attack we had uh, in Kabul, how do you assess the, based on the lesson learned uh, assess, uh, report, how do you assess the capability of Afghan forces that they would be able to protect security uh, for international events such as election? Are you saying after a peace negotiation or what? Or the ongoing elections. Uh, oh, during the election. You know, I, I really can't answer that question. I don't know. I mean, they're going to try, and I know it's going to be difficult. Uh, and I know uh, they will try to get support from 
coalition where they can, but I, I really don't know. I can't comment on it. I don't know. James, do you have uh, any thoughts on that? I know they're doing some election security planning right now to see what they can do for the elections. Um, but this is where we talk about the security force systems brigades and others. When we are able to get to that tactical and operational level, we have a better idea of what the Afghans can and cannot do as far as some of this district level election holding and things of that nature. But since we've moved the second SFAB up to the brigade level, to the core level, yeah. we've kind of lost that visibility to really make an accurate judgment. Yeah, it's hard to assess. Gentleman over here in the front. Uh, Nassim Stanezai, Voice of America. Uh, I interviewed you, sir, in uh, 2016. Uh, one of the questions was that corruption is a major problem in Afghanistan. And uh, I, s I asked that, uh, does it contribute to prolong the war? And you said yes. So is there any uh, progress made so far? Uh, this is uh, one part. And the second, based on your experience and the lesson learned, uh, can you name a few more major uh, problems that can continue this war or prolong this war? Thank you. Okay. Uh, I do remember that interview. Uh, and corruption does impact on the security situation in Afghanistan. Uh, corruption and human rights violations uh, by the Afghan government are utilized by the Taliban and other insurgency forces for recruiting. We know that. Our generals have commented on that. Uh, everyone is aware of that. Uh, corruption is still a problem. Um, and it will continue to be a problem um, until it becomes a, a more uh, until the Afghan government actually becomes more aggressive. Now, have the Af has the Afghan government made progress in that area? Well, we've done a report assessing the Afghan's anti-corruption strategy and its implementation, and we've issued that. We are currently doing a second report, and these reports were asked by Congress, and uh, that report should be coming out sometime in the fall where we'll actually give a more detailed assessment. I don't want to you know, reveal what it is because it hasn't been uh, finalized yet. So we'll be taking a look at the Afghan government's capabilities uh, to address the corruption issue. Corruption is a problem in Afghanistan. I think many Afghans realize that. Uh, it's, again, one of these problems that doesn't disappear overnight. It takes a long time and a lot of effort on it. Uh, we have been critical of the Afghan government uh, where they deserve criticism, and we have praised them where they deserve praise. You're, uh, but it's, it's a mixed bag. But it is a national security risk to the Afghan government and the Afghan people. Uh, now, the other question, are there other problems? Well, the high-risk list talks about them, and I think one of the ones that I think is important to keep in mind is the narcotics problem. Um, that is going to have an impact on uh, successful peace and successful security in Afghanistan. You can't have a narco existence, I mean, you know, uh, which has close ties to narcotics traffic with terrorist groups, uh, and expect you're going to have lasting peace. Uh, narcotics traffickers don't like strong central governments. Uh, 
by definition. Uh, and it's not just in Afghanistan. Uh, you can see it in other countries around the world where there's been uh, narcotics trafficking. Many of the narco traffickers in other countries, and, I, and we have evidence in Afghanistan, work with uh, terrorist groups to provide protection and also to pay taxes. So again, we would be so naive if we think we sign a peace agreement and miraculously narcotics trafficking will disappear. And miraculously those terrorists who had been getting, collecting money and had developed a relationship with the narcotics traffickers will all of a sudden say, oh well, I don't have to do that anymore. We have to make certain that we deal with that problem and more importantly, the Afghans have to deal with that narcotics problem. Uh, so that is, a, that could be a real stumbling block to lasting peace in Afghanistan unless the Afghan government can handle that narcotics problem. So that's the second one. There's a bunch of others we highlighted here. I think human rights is a big issue too in Afghanistan. And not just human rights dealing with uh, gender, but human rights in general. I mean, look at what the Taliban have used for recruiting purposes. And one is the human rights, the illegality, the bad governance. Those things are still going to be there unless the Afghan government and with our help and the coalition help can try to correct those things. Otherwise, you're just going to recruit more t people who are upset with the government. They find no solace from pursuing it in peaceful means and they turn to weapons and destruction. So that's something we have to address, and the Afghan people have to address that. Great. I think we have time for one more question. Let's go with the gentleman here in the front. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, you have mentioned, uh, identified actually two Sir, particular. Sir, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, Thank I'm Barakat from the Embassy of Afghanistan. You uh, you identified two particular issues: one, the frequent uh, personnel rotation and the other one, uh, lack of an agency to coordinate all of the uh, military support uh, efforts in Afghanistan. And I think you mentioned that these two caused uh, to fight uh, instead of one war, 36 wars. Why do you think it took so long for all the agencies involved in the military support mission to not identify this, this particular issue? Why did it take six, six years for CIGAR to come to this conclusion with the sixth uh, lessons learned uh, report? And, and what's the solution to the frequent military, fre frequent personal rotation as well as to, um, I mean, which institution, which, which agency should be um, assigned to uh, coordinate all of these efforts? Thank you. Okay, well, the, very good question. I mean, th these problems, people have identified. I mean, many people who served in Afghanistan came back in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, whatever dates, and, and commented about these being problems. You had some great reporting by both VOA, Washington Post, New York Times, and many other journalists who came back and commented about these problems. Um, the, uh, CIGAR was created 10 years ago, I believe. Uh, I came seven years ago, and I think our, the earliest reports 
we did, looking at individual programs, identified the problem of training uh, fast, uh, too frequent rotations as problems. What we have done here, as part of a lessons learned, have tried to collect as much data we have to try to understand the problem. So this isn't a problem that we just discovered now and no one ever heard of. I don't want anybody to think that. Everybody's been talking about these problems. We serve a different role than, I, I made a comment to somebody about, well, what's your source? Well, your source is the Afghan government, or your source is a contractor, or your source is a reporter. We are different. When we write a report, it has to go through certain review process. It is basically documented. If you take a look at this report, it's 200 some pages. We've got 400 some footnotes. Uh, it meets either generally accepted government auditing standards or what they call blue book or silver book, which are standards that all IGs follow. So when you read this report or you read one of our quarterly reports, you can trust it. You can trust also that we're independent. We don't have a dog in the fight, and that's very important. God bless you for working for your country, the Afghan government. But the Afghan government has their own political and other value system and what they want to accomplish. Our US government does. We're independent. Inspectors general, there's 70 of us, are by law have to be independent. And so you can trust the report coming out from the DOD IG or the state IG or aid IG or SIGAR on issues like this. We try to get to the truth. And that's the difference between these reports and something you may read somewhere else. So to that extent, it's not a new issue, but I think we finally have documented this in the six reports, and we have many others that we're still working on. Um, do we pick one particular agency that is, should be running the show? Not really. Uh, because that's a policy decision. And again, we don't really do policy. Uh, we will identify the problem and make certain recommendations, but it's really up to the Congress and the executive branch, and that's where we make a difference. We do process, they do the policy. Whether they want to be in Afghanistan, whether they want to continue the SFABs, whether they want to do, you know, buy a certain weapon system, you do it, we'll say this is your objective and that you either meet it or don't meet it, and why? But we, it's not our job to pick an agency. So I don't think in anywhere other than we, I think, say that if you, sh if you are doing the train, advise, and assist, it makes sense that the, all the trainers and advisors report to the same agency. In this case, CSTICA, which is sitting out there, the Combined Security Training Command, since it's got training in its name, sounds like a logical place for it, but we back off from saying that's what it should be done. We're just saying you need one. So I, I hope that answers your question. You understand the difference. I mean, don't feel bad if you don't know what an IG is. I don't know how many people in the US government don't even know what an independent IG is. I mean, I was shocked the first time I went overseas and somebody in the State Department says, well, you know, you didn't ask us to write the report and edit it. And I said, well, that kind of violates the independence clause. You know, I have to be independent. 
Uh, and also, we take umbrage with some people who criticize our reports who we know have connections to contractors. And we know have connections to procurements out there. That's all right to be a contractor. It's all right to be involved with procurement. But don't try to hold yourself out as an independent judge of the facts. We all have to sign, every time we do an audit, that we're independent. That's the difference between an independent inspector general in the United States and even an auditing function in some agency. So, I mean, again, I, can, we, I should come back here and give a, a briefing on IGs, because I don't think enough people realize how significant the 1978 IG Act was. And I'm a big proponent. It's one of the, one, a brilliant piece of legislation. We may not have lived up to it as IGs. There's 70 of us. Some of us have been indicted for corruption over the years. So not all of us have lived up to us, and many of us have fallen by the wayside and, and not been independent. And those people, we fortunately, Congress has gotten rid of. But that, it's an important function, and I think very few governments around the world have it, the concept of independent inspectors general. And uh, I, some grad students should do a report on that. So. Absolutely. John and James, thank you so much for your important insights today on the future of security sector assistance in Afghanistan. And John, for reminding us of the importance that the IGs play in the American constitutional system. Um, quite, quite vital. Please join me in thanking our, our two speakers today. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you.